Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. Today I'm joined by Jacob Heilbrunn, who is editor of The National Interest and author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. And I think later we're going to be joined by Sam Tannenhaus, who is an American historian, biographer and journalist. And today we're going to be talking about uh, neocons in Trump land. Can the neoconservatives attach themselves to the new Trump administration or will they be rejected? So, Jacob, you wrote a piece for us online this week about how the neocons are attempting to sort of get involved in Trump land and, and become part of the new administration. Can you explain, and bear in mind an English audience who probably aren't too aware who the neocons are in Washington, what's happening there? Are the neocons being successful in, in wooing the Trump administration or is the, the Trump circle uh, rejecting them? Well, I think, how about if I first briefly give her a uh, Cliff's Notes version of the neocons. That would be great. Who were the intellectual cadre of the Bush administration, who were both vehemently pro-Israel and championed the Iraq war, with figures such as Paul Wolfowitz and others who were in the Defense Department or on the staff of Vice President Dick Cheney. And they promoted the Iraq war as the as what would be kind of a domino effect that if you liberated Iraqis, they would they would greet the Americans with flowers and candies. And it would be a replica of World War Two, where we transformed Germany and Japan into democracies. So the example of Iraq would lead to a wave of democracy in the Middle East, including Iran and Saudi Arabia. Needless to say, things didn't quite turn out like that. The neocons became reviled. George W. Bush's presidency collapsed amidst acrimony and anger. Barack Obama came in as the man who would reverse everything Bush had done, and the neocons seemed to be defeated. Now Donald Trump has become president-elect And he campaigned during the primary also as a firm opponent of unnecessary intervention abroad and explicitly denounced the Iraq war in the South Carolina primary, alleging that it was a lie, that we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and that America needed to fundamentally reorient its foreign policy. Flash forward to today, And we have a new brouhaha developing as some neoconservatives are trying to align themselves with the Bush administration. The majority have belonged to the Never Trump movement. And Trump himself has just appointed Michael Flynn, the former lieutenant general, as his national security advisor. Now, what I think we may see develop in the Trump administration is a peculiar wing of the neoconservatives who have preached a war against Islamofascism. And that 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 includes people like Michael Ledeen, Norman Podoritz has has pushed this. Michael Flynn co-wrote a book with General Flynn saying that we now face a new messianic evil in the form of Islam. So it's really, I wish I, wish I could tell you that there's a 
a firm and clear Trump foreign policy. We don't know. Yeah. Because the other thing we're hearing is that he's reaching out to people like Mitt Romney as his possible secretary of state. Yes. Or Nikki Haley, who's not that kind of figure at all. Correct. So what we could simply see in the Trump administration is internecine fighting. Mm. General Flynn may preach that we need to go on the offensive against Islam, but how would that actually manifest itself in a Trump administration? One thing we do know about Trump is he seems to have a great instinct for what's popular, a much better instinct than anybody in Washington did. I mean, is it possible that actually this this strain of neoconservatism you're talking about, as represented by Mike Flynn, actually has great popular appeal? And, and for people who don't like war, that's the real... That's the really scary thing, that actually that sort of let's smash Islamo-fascism wherever we find it um, has much more popular appeal than perhaps the the neoconservative let's create democracy and uh, spread it across the world. It's certainly possible. I think that the Republican base is both weary and wary of of wars abroad. Mm. And what Trump was able to sell was a policy that was predicated on the internal threat of Muslim subversion more than it was focused on the external threat. And in that sense, you have to say that it is reminiscent of the Republican Party of the early 1950s. Liberals like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. pointed out that the communist threat was really abroad and not internal. Mm. But if you look at the way the Republican Party acted in the early 1950s, it focused on internal subversion and portraying liberals as traitors to America. Now, you could go down that road again in a Trump administration. And Newt Gingrich, for example, proposed reviving the House on Un-American Activities Committee. Yes. In a figure like Steve Bannon, then you have, who's now senior advisor to Trump, you have someone who is constantly on the hunt for this sort of uh, anti-American liberalism within America. Correct. And it proved profitable for the Republican Party in the past to target liberals as traitors. I don't know. At the same time, Trump appointed Reince Priebus, uh, who was head of the Republican National Committee, to be his chief of staff in the White House. So Priebus will actually control the cadres, where Bannon will be more of a one-man show. So the question again is, how much influence will Bannon really wield? Is he a sop to Trump's supporters on on the right? Or is he actually going to wield immense influence in the White House? We have no idea. It's fair to say you're probably more familiar with neocons in Washington than, than most people. How are they reacting to the Trump presidency? Do you sense sort of optimism among them that they can ingratiate themselves? Or do you sense bitterness and resentment that they've lost? Absolutely not. There, it is a it is a war inside the Republican Party. Yeah, the uh, hostility of the neocons to Trump is immense, and it is not being attenuated by appointments like Bannon. And beyond that, not just the neocons, but let's talk about the the Washington establishment, the Washington Post, the civil servants in the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, these people are all petrified at the prospect of a Trump presidency. Mm. The intriguing thing is that he he really could upend the government. You know, he could be the change agent, but is it change for good or for ill? Yes. 
And with General Mike Flynn's appointment, I see stories breaking today, I think it was today, that um, he's received money from Russia. If he's a neoconservative with Russian backing, that's quite a strange situation, is it not? I don't think it's really correct to call someone like Flynn a neoconservative. Whenever you get to these sort of these high-level positions, he's probably better described as an, as an Islamophobe than a neocon, but there is cross-pollination, that's the way I put it. Yeah. And he needs people like Ledine to actually express his views. Could you tell us who Ledine is? Michael Ledine is a, both a uh, historian, a, a gifted writer, and he also served on the National Security Council during the Reagan administration. He was involved in the Iran-Contra affair. He was at the American Enterprise Institute for many years. And he is quite, I would, I would even say quite brilliant. Yeah. And uh, your classic neocon, someone who is a, both a uh, gifted historian and an acute polemicist. And he has been arguing for a long time. His argument during the Bush administration was that we should have attacked Iran rather than Iraq. But he is uh, quite militant, and some people call him an uber-neocon. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about John Bolton, because he seemed to be being mooted as Secretary of State a few days ago. And I think I'm right in thinking the neocons would have been quite excited about that possibility. But that seems to have fallen away a bit, which again points to the fact nobody quite knows what Trump is thinking. Definitely. Both the National, the National Review did an uh, editorial endorsing Bolton. And the Weekly Standard also uh, praised Bolton. They're both close to him. Bolton is, is not really a classic neocon. He uh, is an American nationalist. He doesn't believe in promoting democracy abroad. He just wants to smash other countries. But he's, he's fallen by the wayside. Another appointment that's just my friend Sam Tannenhaus is here, and you'll get to oh. hear his rolls of wisdom in a, in a minute, much more acute than mine, I'm sure. He just reminded me that Jeff Sessions has is, is, is just been, a, been named attorney general, nominated to become uh, attorney general. Yeah. Again, Sessions is, is very tough on the border. So Trump is definitely so far with his appointments sticking to his campaign promises of a very tough administration on Muslims and on immigration. I suppose one of the key debate words in the next few months will be isolationism, because the hawkish or the neocon critique of Trump is always that he's an isolationist. But actually, when it comes to his foreign policy now, the, the, the big question for people will be, is he actually going to be isolationist or is he going to be extremely aggressive, particularly, as you suggest, against um, Islam? Maybe Sam could answer that. The question about isolationism versus aggressive militarism is one that I think will start to sound a little different in the days ahead. Actually, Jacob is much more knowledgeable about this than I am. But ideologically, the country itself has shifted away from the global engagements that seemed to dominate in the Bush years. And even Obama, you'll remember, really wanted to scale back some of the intervention. So I'm not sure Trump is so far out of line as far as all that goes. But you've, you've hit on the point, and I uh, overheard Jacob make it too. What is different now is this very aggressive militaristic foreign policy we're hearing about. We don't know that he's actually going to pursue it. But the rhetoric has changed. And as uh, my biographical subject, uh, William Buckley, said many years ago, rhetoric precedes action and politics. You know, you start with the argument 
you're making and then follow up in some way. And I think Jacob is right that one of the messages we're getting early on with the appointments either that Trump has made or that are the names that are being floated is that he is kind of uh, sticking to his guns on this. Uh, there's something else to add about uh, Sessions. Um, he was in the 80s, I think, he is, was proposed as a possible court appointee, not Supreme Court, but federal court appointee. Mm. And there were questions then about his racial attitudes. He does come from the Deep South. And so that's going to circulate again. There were allegedly comments he made. I think he even admitted he'd made them about the uh, NAACP, which is a great civil rights organization, historic civil rights organization, uh, being anti-American, comments like that. Now, in that time and place, uh, they were not the most unusual comments to make, but they were still unorthodox enough to keep him from getting a federal appointment. Well, as the attorney general, he essentially supervises the civil rights uh, division of the federal government. So mm -hmm. there are going to be questions about that. We're going to be asking more questions about Trump and race. That's the internal side, the domestic side of the anti-Muslim questions you're asking as far as foreign policy goes. Let's also talk a bit, a little bit about Buckley, actually. It's maybe quite an interesting area of the discussion. There's a lot of people, let's call them Trump optimists, see Trump as a sort of Reagan-like figure who was will be hated at the time, but when, as his sort of presidency crystallizes, will become more popular. But if you think about the sort of intellectual sort of behind Reagan, you had someone like Buckley, who was quite a substantial figure. And the intellectuals behind Trump seem to be rather different. Steve Bannon is the, the obvious person here. What do you think about that? Yes, I mean, that's a fair point. If you go back to the origins of ideological conservatism, which predate uh, Reagan, the modern conservative movement really began with the rise uh, first of Joe McCarthy, the uh, notorious Red Hunter, yeah. and um, then Barry Goldwater, who captured the Republican nomination in 1964 and was the first of the great Sunbelt figures who began to dominate the Republican Party when alignment moved from the East Coast out West. There was indeed a circle of very high-powered and impressive intellectuals around those, uh, around first Goldwater and then Reagan. And a mistake liberals made, and our form of liberal, right, progressives, was to underrate the intellectual firepower of those intellectual cadres, I'll use Jacob's term. Uh, people like James Burnham and Milton Friedman, the economist, the free market economist, in retrospect, they look like giants. Yeah. We don't see any evidence so far of really serious thinkers, arguers, polemicists who work at a, at a high level, you know, who support Trump, that is, have written consequential books. You know, Friedman and, and Burnham wrote important books. George Orwell's, uh, one of his most famous essays is an attack on James Burnham, you know, from the 1940s, uh, when Burnham was on the left. Many of them had traveled this now very familiar ideological circuit from the left to the right. And we don't see any of that with Trump. 
Said we don't see much of that anywhere in American politics. <laughs> That's true. Well, one figure who has been connected to Trump, maybe a sort of brain behind, behind Trump and his foreign policy, is F.H. Buckley, who is no relation to, to the Buckley you write about. Do you know about him? Could you tell us about him? Well, I reviewed his most recent book to his displeasure. Yes. Um, and I was actually surprised after I reviewed it in the New York Times uh, to learn that he was a supporter of Trump because he seemed to write about what we now think of as Trump's Rust Belt Republican base, you know, that huge red part of the map that reaches from, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Boise, Idaho, some 2,500 miles. Hmm. He described the inhabitants of that middle America in, I thought, quite disparaging ways. Yeah. The text for people who want to know of the background, I wouldn't look so much to Buckley, though he's, he's highly intelligent. I would look to Charles Murray and his book, Coming Apart. Yeah. Now, Murray dislikes Trump intensely. He thinks that uh, he's, he's neither intelligent nor morally fit. He thinks he's a real reprobate, reprobate, as many others do. But the picture Murray gives of America is one that will help you understand Trump's popularity, which is this emerging, enlarging, dislocated, what we're now calling white working class. Yeah. That feels marginalized in the culture. That argument is going to gain traction in the days ahead. We're going to hear more and more about that. I, I suppose everybody's so desperate to find brains behind Trump, and perhaps there aren't any. But one figure who keeps coming up, and who certainly a lot of people seem to think is pulling the strings behind the operation, is Jared Kushner. Have you got a sense of where he is ideologically? I don't, but I believe he comes from a family of Democrats, doesn't he? Um, yeah. He's, he is going to be a real focus of fascination in the days ahead. He, he and his wife, Ivanka Trump, are going to be the new sort of glamour couple in America. Yeah. He now appears actually even to want to position in government, which is illegal. Yeah. Uh, there are nepotism laws <laughs> that uh, actually don't allow it. Uh, after uh, uh, President Kennedy appointed his brother, Robert, to be attorney general, there were uh, laws were put in place because of obvious conflict of interest. So Kushner has become this kind of enigmatic figure. You know, he's a media figure in New York because he owns uh, the New York Observer, which was kind of a, a local highbrow gossip sheet. Yeah. That was was widely read, particularly in the 1990s. One of its editors was Graydon Carter, who was my uh, editor at uh, Vanity Fair and is still at Vanity Fair. So there's a kind of glamour to Kushner and a great deal of wealth. Yeah. Ideologically, I don't think we really know because he's been quite a shadowy figure. It's sort of a New York story, isn't it? I think if you want to get a real sense of what's happening with Trump, you really need to understand New York politics in the last 20 years. Well, or New York culture. Culture, You know, yeah. the Tribune of the Great American Working Class lives in a gilded triplex in midtown Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's very much a New York story, but you know this entire election was... Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump moved in many of the same circles. It's one of the oddities. Another oddity of this election is how old Trump is. He's the oldest president ever elected, older than Reagan. Yeah. Hillary would have been the second oldest after, after just after Reagan. Even Bernie Sanders, who we think of as, a, as an outsider, he's a New Yorker too, isn't he? He, there. That's right. He's from Brooklyn. It's very much a New York story, and it's about New York 
culture as much as it is about New York politics. New York politics is not very important nationally. There, it used to be. Yeah, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and Nelson Rockefeller were great figures no one remembers. Mm. But local New York politics is not a very influential nationally. But culturally, New York is still at the center, one of the centers, one of the nerve centers, along with uh, Los Angeles and Chicago in its own way. So Trump comes out of a kind of high-flying you remember the film Wall Street, right? Yeah. Kind of greedy capitalist New York, which increasingly seems a time of romance that's looked back at quite nostalgically, I think, by many Americans. And Trump comes out of that world, and it looks as if the country is readier for that than anyone would have predicted. Yeah. Well, we better wrap this up. But Sam and Jacob, could I just ask you, how worried are you by first signs of this Trump transition? How optimistic are you that things could be changing in an exciting way? I realise it's a difficult question to ask, but if we could start with you, Sam, and then Jacob. Those are the two adjectives, frightened and excited. For people like us who write about this, it's stimulating. I've got a piece coming out in the Sunday Times uh, this this coming Sunday that's going to be about how Trump could could actually be our new deal president, you know, because nobody knows. So that's that's the stimulating part. He's anti-ideological, which for me is actually a step forward. But we have no idea what his temperament will yield once a crisis comes um, and once he actually has to manage the government. And now we'll let uh, Jacob give us some actual wisdom instead of just opinion. <laughs> well, Sam is always is uh, deflecting, right? Uh, putting me on the spot. I think there definitely is a bit of both. I mean, I emailed someone that I oscillate between uh, being sanguine and and uh, frightened about what's coming. You just the, the, what's so interesting is it's totally unpredictable. I mean, are we in June 1914 where everything is just starting to spiral out of control around the world, or is Trump going to give the American political system the good swift kick that it needs, which is frankly we've had. Everyone agrees that America internally is a terrible impasse, horrendous polarization. Congress essentially has become feckless and inert over the past decade. I think the uh, Congress of the last session was one of the least productive, if not the least productive in American history. So the positive scenario is that Trump comes in, uh, is a deal maker, has no compunction about pushing through an infrastructure deal, if he likes with the Democrats, that he's really his own man. He's a pragmatic and shrewd businessman who uh, puts together a, uh, a, a semi-coherent administration and uh, becomes a great success in the end. The uniter of the republic, uh, the economy booms, uh, the stock market is high. And to everyone's astonishment, <clears throat> he turns out to be a quite adept president much as Ronald Reagan, who was scorned by liberal elites, uh, called an amiable dunce by Clark Clifford, who had been a Truman administration advisor. So maybe uh, Trump proves everyone, proves all our elites wrong. Frankly, the amount of hand-wringing going on, as, as Sam was telling me, at places like the New York Times is uh, quite substantial and uh, copious tears are being shed among liberal elites yeah. over the rise of, of Trump. Yeah. Now, the other negative scenario, which, you know, I can paint you plausibly as well, as well is that he points someone like Rudy Giuliani, Secretary of State, 
Flynn is in at NSA. Trump goes on a on a wild spending spending and tax cut binge. Inflation starts to spiral out of control. He, uh, there's a crisis abroad with China that spirals out of control. Or uh, Flynn and the others convince him to take the Iranians' attack, nab some of our sailors. Trump bombs Tehran. You get a war in the Middle East that spirals out of control. The Straits of Hormuz are shut down. Oil goes to $500 a barrel. And we're in a global depression. That's the difference between Trump and Clinton. Yeah. We are. We don't even have a known unknown here. Yeah. <laughs> to, to Rumsfeldian terminology. These are unknown unknowns that we're heading into, <laughs> and that's not something that world leaders or financial markets usually like. I think we should um, wrap it up there, but there's going to be a hell of a lot to talk about, that's for sure. And I hope both of you will talk to us again. Uh, Jacob and Sam, thank you very much. Uh, Just a reminder that the Americano podcast is carrying on, even though the election is over, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes.